Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is Dustin Ragland. Hello. What's up? Not much. We just got done with a class. <laughs> yeah. So I've uh, really subjected you to something, and then now you're going to interrogate me. So yeah. that's fine. No, yeah. I mean, it, it's a really <laughs> fun class, and I really... Um, if I were to have... Whenever I was deciding to change majors from vocal music ed... Yeah. Um, and I was like, ah, oh, there might be like some leeway time. Maybe I might finish this bachelor's or just a bachelor's yeah, before totally. I go to ACM or something. And I like highly considered doing a philosophy major. Totally. Um, yeah. But I just ended up just jumping over here for to get the bachelor's anyways. Yeah. But regardless, yeah, I really totally. enjoyed the awesome. philosophy aspect. Awesome. Of, um, the usual first question yeah, totally. on this podcast is, what do you do? So it's probably a combo now of um, being a teacher. So I've been part of ACM for six years now as an adjunct for a while, and then now for a couple of years as a full-time instructor. Um, an adjunct thing, you know, could be full-time. It could be one class semester. It kind of would just yeah. vary over the years. But uh, I've done that for a while, and it began as something I did in the midst of being a traveling musician. Um, mm -hmm. I traveled and played drums for an artist from Oklahoma City for um, about – 11 years really is a full-time thing mm -hmm. um, and then it's really occasional now if we're still doing stuff um, and then uh, so the teaching side is one thing of that and then I have a small studio do production recording there um, independent artists come in bands songwriters I do composition um, there a recent thing that's been common has been doing um, like uh, composition for podcast music mm -hmm. and for short videos internet things like that and then obviously a lot of tracking and recording, um, yeah. remote tracking sometimes, things like that. And then I'm on staff at Frontline Church in downtown Oklahoma City um, as the uh, main uh, audio tech there and also kind of a quasi-music directorish role, especially mm -hmm. like special seasons. So when Christmas Eve rolls around or Easter, Good Friday, yeah. or um, uh, Advent as a whole, um, uh, we do tend to have like more special services. So I'll help um, kind of arrange songs and reimagine yeah. some layers of music and help do a lot of like programming for yeah. you know, tracks that we play live and that kind of thing. So Jeez. between those <laughs> three-ish jobs, it turns into some kind of role of being a musician. Um, yeah. And it obviously ebbs and flows over time, but that's kind of the three big things yeah. right now that are going on. What do you, of these things, what do you consider being the most of like, this is who I really am? Yeah. I mean, probably, probably the being a musician part is... Yeah the most fundamental um which was very you know fortunate lucky all of the adjectives to be able to like, <laughs> do that really as a job right out of college which wasn't my intent i was mm -hmm. intending to go just keep kind of doing college for a while after undergrad um but so i consider that that's probably the most core but i also know that i don't ever want to be somebody who's like no yeah i'm really like what i do my job is i'm really a musician when 90 percent of my time i'm spending which is not the case now but like uh, the majority of time has been yeah. doing these other crafts or tasks. So, sure. I mean, I think in terms of like career, like craft, it's figuring out how to become really a, uh, to let that identity also alight into being a teacher of music and, yeah. um, and in ways that aren't necessarily the kind of traditional teachers of music path, um, whether it's kind of the traditional pedagogy path or classical music or jazz mm -hmm. based, it's contemporary music, which yeah. then is sort of or is really brand new and something we're trying to pull off here yeah and a lot of other people are and so it feels like there's a future there but it's very 
undefined what that what that whole academic world looks like because yeah. I believe in the academic side but I also believe in the the way that being a creator subverts academic pursuits at times sure so, yeah. um, I will take note of that but yeah, I, yeah. I at least want to ask uh, what'd you get your undergrad in uh, in biblical languages cool. uh, so um, most of what I did um, at Oklahoma Baptist University um, was built around. I, I went in and initially was going to study international business because I thought, oh, international. That means you like <laughs> travel and learn languages and, and then do business and that sort of thing. And after a semester of um, influence from like philosophy classes and a couple of the religion classes, I realized that was really a focus that would help me to narrow in and do well. And I really mm -hmm. enjoyed that side of thinking about theology, which was always kind of the end goal was to work in the yeah. field of theology. So um, it it was more clear to approach that from the languages um, yeah. without even really having a big philosophical picture of that. It was just more like, hey, I, I focus well when I do these, so yeah. um, I'm able to do better in terms of, you know, even just practical stuff like grades and um, having objective things to uh, accomplish. So. Anyway, I did that in my minors in um, English, so I did a lot of like extra mm. literature and philosophy studies um, underneath the languages side of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I find that really cool and that it, even still you ended up doing music. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was totally like, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that have no, they, the path to, be, to doing music is very circuitous. It's very... Thing unexpected things happen, and, yeah. and so the summer before my senior year in undergrad, I did a couple of recording projects as a drummer, and the engineers and the people that worked on them were very non non patronizing people. So they're not mm -hmm. people that just like hand out compliments or hand out encouragement. And sure. both of those experiences, they were very encouraging about what I did. And it in the back of my mind, in the back of my mind of everybody who takes music seriously when they're learning an instrument or they're writing music or playing, yeah. they're thinking, well, what if I could do this as my job? Yeah. Um, even if that's not a desire, it's something that's always there because that's part of the, like the unicorn. How do yeah. you do this as your job, you know? <laughs> and um, so I thought, man, I might take a year off after I graduate and just try to play music. I had no idea what that meant or what I was actually practically gonna do. I would meet up with some friends that did do music um, full time. Mm. Um, that I looked up to, and like I went into them those conversations being like, "So, do I learn this particular paradiddle or like this kind of like technique?" Where they would talk about like the weirdness of music industry or what kind of stuff to listen to and like non-quantized beats. And I'm like at the time going, "I have no idea what you're talking about." Yeah. Um, but then over time, those conversations ended up being way more fruitful because they mm -hmm. talked to me about all the things that were not music about working in music and that's the stuff that tends to burn people out or to um, be the most flummoxing in the whole process yeah. and so that last semester that I was in undergrad I began to travel a bit with the, uh, Charlie Hall with the artist that I uh, played with for a long time and just finished up my degree there uh, and graduated was able to do that kind of with the help of professors going hey I might have to travel a little bit yeah. it wasn't tons but it was a little bit of like if I'm missing classes or if I'm missing this particular thing, I want to make sure I stay on top of my work and all that kind of stuff. Um, things that hopefully still inform my empathy for students who have to do that way more in our yeah. context here than I did in studying amongst other biblical languages and studies yeah. folks. So, um, <laughs> where many of most of us were not traveling that much at that point. So, yeah. Um, at that point, like, what was what was sort of your end goal in in studying big biblical languages? Uh, I mean, I 
I think I went into it with a vague, I knew, I knew that I enjoyed thinking about the process of faith and I knew I enjoyed thinking about the things that undergirded it, but I didn't really have a whole lot of like, that just wasn't something that people sat around and talked about. There was no context for that. It was, you did that either within the context of church or you did it within the context of like, um, parachurch things like Young Life or FCA or something like that but yeah. there was no it was just kind of like oh that's just what you do as part of other things that you're doing but then being in undergrad even that first semester again seeing the world of philosophy opened up into an intro to philosophy class yeah um, I just it was sort of like a, it's what um, uh, again Dave Foster Wallace uh, you're probably sick of hearing about at this point mm-hmm. but um, calls like this click it's this thing in your mind where it feels like everything all of a sudden fits together yeah. And for whatever reason, I could just think and um, dialogue and talk and mm-hmm. read and explore that world and we get tired of it. And so um, then it became the end goal of, oh, I wonder if I could pursue some sort of either master's and, and or terminal degree in this world. And mm-hmm. initially, might have I, I wouldn't really know what I wanted to actually do with it as a job, yeah. but then teaching really became more and more the goal of it, which yeah. is ironic. and that I ended up doing, I mean, teaching, yeah. even though I like completely veered off that path. <laughs> um, it was always on the back of my mind, even when I was traveling yeah. um, to go back and somehow have that be part of the picture. And I had no idea, like any musician that enters into to work um, traveling, they're going, uh, this could last for 30 days. It could last mm-hmm. for, you know, 20 years. There's no yeah. real way to tell. <laughs> um, and so it was always there as something back of my mind. But, yeah. Um, and then aside from that, like going even farther back, how, how did you even get started with music? Um, in eighth, in eighth grade. So I'd like, you know, growing up, always interested in music, mm-hmm. um, you know, ever since I was a kid, um, and parents were both musical in the sense they really enjoyed music and there was always music around and playing. Yeah. We had a lot of old like dub VHS tapes of different artists and things that go back and see. We lived in Nashville for a little while when I was really young. I don't mm-hmm. remember much of that, but uh, I hear stories that I was like playing on pots and pans and things like that. Yeah. And we were around um, some professional drummers at the time or like friends and family members. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of it. But um, I, I got in guitar lessons when I was in seventh grade. I really wanted to learn how to play guitar like Mark Knopfler. He was like the guy <laughs> I really love, which is like, I never felt like an old soul, but I would say that now and people would be like, what? That's just really old dude, even in the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. And so Never really got lessons, guitar sat in the corner, never did anything. But then um, in eighth grade, I saw some friends of mine play uh, at a talent show. They played uh, Self-Esteem by the Offspring. And uh, I remember paying attention then and realizing like, oh, seems really doable. This is cool. Yeah. And I noticed that girls were really liking what they did. And I was like, okay, so as an eighth <laughs> grader, you're going, okay, so I'm, I, there are several reasons why this might work out. Yeah. Um, and being a tall person, of course, I played basketball, but I was not great. I wasn't terrible. I wasn't great. It was just kind of <laughs> eh, in the middle of it. It was like a fine line between being tall and, like, cool and, like, graceful and, like, being just lanky and awkward. Yeah. I was mostly <laughs> on the lanky and awkward side of that <laughs> equation. And there were guys that were really, really great that was around. Um, so it was like that was always going to have a, a limit, a cap on it as to how <laughs> fun and they were effective at, like, drawing the attention out of sex would be. Uh, so, um and so I just, uh, my dad actually was a drummer, and mm. although we'd never really talked to her and, or, like, done a whole lot of musical, like, back and forth, like, there wasn't a, like, oh, sit down and play drums. It was just, like, that was always something that was a part of the picture in the background. I got his drums out one day, uh, and 
sat down with a pair of hi-hats, put it on a bed and a snare, and was playing along with uh, Cheryl Crow's uh, All I Want to Do, which is just like, <laughs> ch- 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 like this really simple thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this seems kind of doable. This is kind of fun. And so then slowly over time, uh, my parents were divorced at that point, so they, I would go down to my dad's every other weekend in Norman and um, would slowly start to build up this drum set that he had. And this was like a full-on like rack, like Gibraltar yeah. rack and all these toms and cymbals and everything. Um, and I like initially didn't have the kick drum in there, so I'd just like keep four with my, <coughs> excuse me, count to four with my feet yeah. and never um, really focus on the kick pattern. And then slowly over time, get those patterns down. When I'd be at my mom's, when I didn't have any drums, uh, which was the majority of the time I would have this futon and I'd sit uh, cross-legged in front of the futon, put a pillow up like toms and then like listen to records and headphones and kind of practice them on yeah. that, do my fill across the toms and wiggle <laughs> my legs to the leg patterns and then eventually start to apply that to the drum set whenever I went down. Then eventually, I taught my dad to let me pull the drums up to uh, my mom's house in Edmond and I would practice when I got home from basketball practice or whatever, <laughs> play along with records, which was most of how I did learning and growing in the early days of drumming was like find a record and then just learn how to play yeah x song b song that sort of thing that's a lot of how i learned yeah. how to play guitar too oh totally yeah um and then how did that sort of turn into like a bigger sort of real thing uh i mean par partially through like playing in bands like kind of playing in all these little aggro punk indie <laughs> rock bands it was uh, I'm trying to think of like uh, some of musical heroes were like For Love Not Lisa and Helmet and um, Drive Like Jehu and uh, Jawbox and uh, Sensefield and some of these different bands. Um, what are broadly emo, but in a way that has nothing to do with probably what people call emo nowadays. Yeah. That just didn't exist then, but was coming into being. Um, but definitely more hardcore. So picturing emo like Fugazi level emo not like mm-hmm. um, American football or something like that and definitely not like My Chemical Romance or something yeah. so um, nothing there's anything wrong with either one of those bands <laughs> um, I love American football but um, but uh, started playing in bands and we were doing that kind of music and then I also was playing some stuff in uh, church and youth group growing up so I was playing some different styles and a lot of the stuff I was playing in church was kind of quasi-improvisational, like you're mm-hmm. kind of having to flow with the different moments of the service and what's yeah. going on there. Um, and so it was neat to have those two different influences going on, like a much more rock and roll world and then a very almost session, player-oriented world. And it was always a world that I kind of tried to try to sit between, really, as I was growing up as a musician, but to where I really did believe in like the scenes and the um, playing according to the unwritten rules and the quasi-written <laughs> rules of like being in heavy music and all the little arbitrary things that we thought were cool and not yeah. cool while also playing in worlds where there was no real like cool or uncool it was like being able to adapt to styles and mm-hmm. um, improvise in the moment even if it wasn't difficult music it was something yeah. that you had to pay attention to everybody around you and what else was going on and um, play with dynamics and mm-hmm. um more techniques than a, one particular genre would have, and mm-hmm. definitely when that one particular genre was loud and heavy. So, um, <clears throat> so it was always a world I was between. It con- sometimes caused tension. Like I didn't play very heavy some of the early days when I was playing, and that was an encouragement from people on the outside to be like, play heavier. Like what you're doing technically is great, but but it's not hitting the drums loud enough, and so yeah. to really fit in that world. And that's also part of playing in clubs and not having great sound and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, <laughs> then uh, 
the other side, I remember I was in a punk band for a little while where we actually did have a conversation of like, hey, can you play a little more messy? And at the time, <laughs> it was kind of like, it wasn't pretentious, like I was some like super precise player, but it was like, it just wasn't the same, right, the same fit. Even yeah. though I loved that world, I wasn't playing to the fit of it. And at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't offensive to me, but I was sort of like, well, that seems kind of weird. But then nowadays, I'm kind of understand a little bit more of, oh, man, yeah, I could have probably just been more purposely messy <laughs> for fun. And now it's more of like a release to be able to do that instead yeah. of having to keep everything tight or whatever. But, yeah. um, but that just turned into um, Charlie, who was <clears throat> a worship leader in a local church at the time, um, uh, would come to some of these shows and I always knew him as that kind of person but it became an artist that eventually would have a career in traveling and being um, you know a full-time musician and mm -hmm. when it came about that he needed a drummer in about 2003 the beginning of 2003 um, uh, asked me to kind of come in and fill in on some things and then um, through that spring and summer that was when I was graduating and finishing out and that summer was like, hey, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't keep filling in. And that was like yeah. the DTR. And we just were like, okay, well, and then kept doing it for 10 years after that. So, Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then how did you get into the like audio engineering production side? Um, that was really from, I always enjoyed writing music. And so having a tool to write um, meant I had to have something to like record one thing at a time because I, not, not out of anything, honestly, like, drive or purpose it was just necessity like, yeah necessity i wanted to be able to write something on drums and then be able to play a guitar over that and then essentially uh, be able to yelp and or sing over that with lyrics and that was always the end goal is like to express something i know it sounds yeah. super like traditional but it was like oh i want to say something mm -hmm. and music seems like the best way to say that um and in order to do that i had to have some tools to do that. so it started with like an old um Tascam tape four track and mm -hmm. learned about like bouncing tracks over and was like what you can have seven or eight tracks if yeah. you bounce this right like all the things that the Beatles figured out in the 60s uh, was figuring out in the 90s like yeah okay this is <laughs> this is great um, and then I eventually got a computer that would record I remember using like some old versions of Cakewalk like plugging in through like four adapters into the <laughs> the uh, DirectX sound card or whatever was in the back of it. Um, and then starting to really, after I started traveling and seeing a lot more of a way professional recording worked, um, yeah. ended up uh, really beginning as a producer where I would go and help um, different artists by either playing different instruments with them, helping them to, uh, with arrangements, and then uh, other people engineering, and then eventually people that's just starting to engineer almost by default. Like yeah. when I was producing people, they would wanted somebody to record them, and it just seemed to make a lot more sense and ease to start recording them myself. And I'd gotten... Uh, version of live uh, 2.1 I think is what it was 2.1 <laughs> or 2.5 something like that um, from an M audio uh, rep back in 2003 and it was the only thing I had that could record audio on a Mac and so yeah. um, just ended up using Enable Live for a bunch of that stuff in really weird ways like but it, because it recorded it was like okay that's now we're gonna work yeah. and like try to figure out ways to do like takes and workflows and things mm -hmm. that live still doesn't really do all that much of um, just find some ways to work around that stuff and so it just became a unique way of recording in and then slowly building up gear and having itinerant home, apartment, random room studios and occasionally <laughs> being an engineer in like a bigger studio. Um, and then oftentimes as a drummer for sessions, like having mm -hmm. different engineering roles and um, other like production looping and layering, putting 
yeah the loops and things like that underneath what was going on drum wise um all that stuff naturally just landed to going well i can kind of visualize the whole picture of what this could be and mm-hmm. then put some concrete steps behind it and just start doing that so yeah um so i mean it, i find it really cool that like you've you've been able to sort of non-traditionally although traditionally like gain all of this experience through through the music industry yeah, totally. um in a way that like i mean especially for working at a school now yeah. like you know for for all other applications of education you know one has to have like a bachelor's degree or a master's yeah, totally, to, yeah. to teach that way but um ACM is interesting in the way that like the experience honestly speaks more than an yeah. education um and so yeah even though you you have your your bachelor's and something almost entirely unrelated to yeah, music yeah. that um that your experience means so much uh for teaching here yeah yeah um so like how do you feel that your experience has sort of brought you here yeah um no that's a great question I, it is weird and and again this world is changing and yeah. it's like the, the the framing of 10 years ago doing some sort of contemporary music from an education side was really tough you were like shoehorning in your modern electric guitar playing into like a classical guitar yeah. one or two classes if your college offered that maybe mm-hmm. or you were studying classical music or jazz and then you applying those things over to the styles that you were in if they weren't those and for yeah. a lot of people that is the style that they're like working in and into um, <clears throat> honestly Mitch Bell here is one of the best people I know at taking his jazz studies which he can absolutely just slay as a jazz player <laughs> and has so much um, wisdom and reflection in that and real true skill and talent but also playing in completely unrelated genres in ways that are totally authentic and yeah. it's really hard to do that and so if you came into music through education, it was by somehow being able to adapt like that. But then, I mean, how it informs being here, I mean, some of it is always trying to kill pretentiousness um, and going, like, I remember how many things I did wrong um, and sometimes continue to do in the act of recording and, and projects that people that were much more experienced than me were really patient to explain to me, like, why it mattered that my sample rate was one particular thing and not another, yeah. which was something that happened a long time ago. Um, why some of the ideas I get to experiment on, like, oh, this particular drum sound, I did this weird minimal mic thing, and the engineer calmly explained, like, yeah, that also makes mixing really, really difficult, <laughs> um, the guy that was mixing the record, um, for this, but not in a way that was kind of sinning, just like, I want to go with your vision on this, but I also know that your vision makes things limiting from my end, yeah. and being able to understand some of those processes. So the goal is then to be able to translate some of that into a much more condensed version for students so that not not so that they won't make mistakes because that's really the most helpful thing to learn is being yeah. embarrassed sometimes by what you're doing <laughs> that's silly and knowing that it's totally normal and okay to be a mistaken person which is really hard in music production and mm-hmm. engineering because it is creative art but it's also a technical art and yeah when engineers make mistakes 
you know, like structural engineers, they're costing people's lives. When musical engineers make mistakes, they can cost people their creativity or music in that moment. And obviously there's a little more stake in one um, than the other, but there's also, this is different kinds of values, but there's still values in yeah. both of those. And so the goal is to make those mistakes in a controlled environment here so that, um, or relatively controlled, so that then when you are working in your professional fields, you're able to jump past years of pushing the wrong buttons to, no, now I'm pushing the right buttons. So then 10 years down the road, you are doing something at a skill level that um, those of us that grew up having to do that over a much slower process, yeah. it took a longer time to get to. And then these engineers that are growing up now where you have a shorter learning process, mm-hmm. um, a steeper learning curve, you're able to apply that in creative ways that don't even know what that's going to be like, you know, 10 yeah. years from now or 20 years from now. Um, and because there's not a whole lot of traditional studio mentoring pro- programs that are around because traditional studios don't exist hardly anymore. It's tough for, it's tough for me to be able to get people to come in and intern, which I wish I could more. Yeah. And it's tough for you or for a fellow student to find an internship job at a big studio because there's just not that many. And so yeah. this provides that big studio experience. Some of the mentorship that occurs, um, also while wrapping it into public education, which is crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, what do you feel is like, I guess your, your most important role, um, in, in teaching students here? Uh, I mean, I, I would think, and this maybe is the betrayal of like having a liberal arts background and working in, um, you know, roughly academic-y, academic-y field, something like that, (laughs) Uh, very academic term, (laughs) uh, is that is, it is critical thinking because, um, gosh, and I feel like a very good typical white liberal liberal <laughs> arts teacher or something like that, which I don't necessarily mean to intend, but, but that really is being able to think your way through the problems. That can apply to like really technical issues. Um, I mean, even just this week working with students who are trying to reason through a patch bay, um, going like, if you break this down into discrete steps of, okay, the microphone's going into this, and mm-hmm. then this microphone line's going into this, and then this processor's going into this, that it's much more e- it's much more approachable than if you're trying to figure it all out right at once from one side of it yeah. and go well from A to Z um, there's A to B uh, B to C C to D and all those kind of things it's um, mm-hmm. the critical thing inside goes okay I can break this down from A to B B to C C to D yeah. and then I'm going to get to Z and I know that I don't need to panic right now whereas for a lot of young engineers the panic is the first place because you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out everything at once yeah. and you don't want to appear to any of your fellow engineers, like, oh, I've got to figure this out and I don't know what's going on right now. So breaking down those two walls of like pretension and using your critical thinking yeah. in objective and like philosophical ways when we can, um, that's what that's my hope for yeah. all that stuff. Well, what's something that you've learned by teaching here? Oh, geez. Um, uh, really the value of of learning how to translate somewhat ethereal things in creative arts or in, you know, philosophical thinking or in making a decision uh, to create something in a moment, learning how to translate it into really objective technical terms so that it's, that honestly makes it easier. So for example, in a DAW class where you're faced with a, a wide variety of options and one yeah. particular sound, um, you know, even thinking of like something enabled in live, like you're trying to design a synthesizer sound for this particular thing. 
figuring out some very objective ways to go, this is the kind of sound that fits. There are also five other kind of sounds that would fit, <laughs> but I'm going to go with this one. And I'm going to trust it and um, use that it, instead of being caught, caught in this loop of like, well, I want to write this part, but I still haven't got the sound right, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or, okay, I got this part, but, um, or not even focusing on the sound at all and having a really interesting part, but not really having something that feels like it fits in the rest of the arrangement or mm -hmm. inspires an artist, that sort of thing. Um, it's really learning every single class and semester new ways in which to do that. Yeah. Because it's, it is tough to translate those things and... Um, which then forces me to learn new ways of even thinking sure. about it and new information. Even, yeah. So. And at the same time, uh, putting a joke in between everything that you <laughs> yeah, do, exactly. which is probably one of my favorite things about being in your classes anyways. Well, part of that, <laughs> I appreciate it, but part of it is a way that's, I, there's definitely coping mechanisms inside <laughs> of it. Like, <clears throat> for myself, as a generally shy person, being in front of a room of people and then also being in the as a, this is the progressive coming out of like being in a situation where I'm placed in a position of authority on a subject that is fairly democratic. I mean, creativity is mm -hmm. one of the more democratic subjects and leveling kind of subjects. So then I get nervous of like being in that too much authority, you know, a very, <laughs> a very um, uh, you know, self-deprecatory thing. And then the breaking of that tension just comes from joking. But it's also honestly a way of just trying to get people to relax and yeah. to feel at ease, to feel like their thoughts are going to be valid. And if they don't necessarily know what's going on, that they can still ask questions. And that is very honestly, every single time I've say it so many times that people are sick of it, of like, there are never bad questions. Your question is probably in somebody else's mind. That's definitely the case. It's just not everybody believes that. And I'm the same way. I've, I've laughed this semester being in a graduate class now, again, after not being in school for 10 years, mm -hmm. um, laughed at, how nervous I get when I'm answering a question in class and I'm like, I'm, and I feel like I've got the content and I'm still kind of like, well, but it's actually like, I'm totally, and yeah. And I'm on the other side of that so much that it's just weird to be back in that position of like, yeah. Oh crap. I'm a nervous student again. You know? That's yeah. Like, well, I mean, just, and I, I try as yeah. your student to, uh, sort of get, get rid of that in, in a way that's just, if you ask a question, just answering it, as honestly and as upfront as I can be instead of being so crippled by the anxiety sure, sure, of, yeah. well, everyone in here is listening to what I have to say now and yeah. now I have to say something smart. Totally. And, you know, uh, uh, at least over time, over blunders of just like saying something wrong and just, no, nope, that's wrong. Yeah. Okay. And the, <laughs> totally, yeah. It's, it's okay. Um, but a very bad transition into the second part no, of this podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you believe? What do I believe, man? Um, in general, um, gosh, I, it's probably ever evolving in one sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's always in the context of, you know, I've grown up inside, um, the Christian religious tradition and mm -hmm. grew up in Baptist church for a while and then went to an interdenominational church, which is I'm still in kind of interdenominational world. And if there was a denomination that I feel the most fitting into, it's some kind of version of Anglicanism, like a relatively liturgical, high churchy, stylistic thing, <laughs> um, mostly like an Episcopal church, Episcopal church in the States. But um, 
Anglicanism only because I haven't really belonged to Catholicism, and um, there are some pieces that uh, I feel like are impenetrable for me, always growing up in a low church, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, that I appreciate the blending of that. That happens in Anglicanism, even though the low churches really distrust them and the high churches really distrust them. It's, it's all funny. But, <laughs> um, so there's that form around it, but in terms of believing, I think in the past, you know, five, six, seven years, I've really been both convicted and very, and and very kind of contemporary evangelical terms. Yeah, felt the conviction of belief really being a function of what my actions are, and not that, not that in the context of Christianity that I'm being saved by what I'm doing, or that doing the right things then guarantees, you know, either the you know the outcomes that are part of most religious traditions, nor is it guarantee a form of righteousness in any way, but more so that it reveals what I believe, like that what I'm doing and saying and how I'm behaving towards others is, is not defining it, but it's, it's really revealing what it actually is. And that can work both ways too, to again, convict backwards into going, man, I'm saying all this stuff. And I think I cognitively have like, in square terms, I cognitively have acquiescence to these ideas about, you know, specifically the kingdom of God or something. And but what I'm doing has no relation to that at all. So am I just really saying that? And and I think there's some, you know, there's timely workings out of that, of, um, gosh, man, the whole evangelicals voting for Trump thing becomes very, like, the, the rift is seeing, like, there's a lot of saying what you believe without actually having that change anything about your life. And yeah. the idea of metanoia um, in Greek, the repentance that comes about in biblical scripture and even in just language terms that that really is the changing of mind the um changing the way you think about things and one of the most helpful forms of metanoia has been the acting out empathy and so yeah allowing empathy to reveal to me what i'm actually believing and what i'm actually truly trusting in both metaphysically um, in terms of religious faith which i think is the the source of the fountain of all the stuff that's coming out but also where I've either kind of tried to throw my hands on top of the the fountain a little bit and keep the water in or keep <laughs> keep that from informing something because it cost me something or is uncomfortable or mm -hmm. and that's a probably a daily revelation of sure well I say I believe this but I don't know that I actually do yeah um, now does that make sense yeah I, and I want to be specific enough that it's like that I'm not coy about like being a devout Christian or being progressive as a Christian or sure. being conservative in some ways or whatever, but also want to not wrap it up in like those terms or political terms or whatever. Yeah, you know? exactly. So. Um, and I, I find that very refreshing sure, too, sure. that um, obviously where we live and everything, it's, yeah, um, yeah. that um, having the understanding that you do, um, especially confronting all of the different philosophical ideas sure, yeah. that are constantly hammering away at your faith, um, that it's, while obviously nobody has the answer, that, that, you, that you're able to find where you exist within yeah. all of those other questions. Totally. I mean, and the, and the thing that's sort of like, you know, again, we, we've encountered that, you and I, in a lot inside of the context of music and meaning, um, which is about the, you know, which is this survey of philosophical ideas, but 
the whole way that when I've talked earlier about that being like the click, that that was a thing that um, made me want to constantly explore it is that it really does feel like the way that, um, you know, it, most religious people go through and most non-religious people, you know, that as broad as I can put those two terms, like they go through crises of faith where mm-hmm. um, sometimes that is where these ideas that feel very lofty and make a lot of sense when they're ideas, they get worked out in real life and it turns out they're not making any sense at all or yeah. that it's extreme suffering or pain. And that's a tradition that's been lost in the kind of um, theologies of victory that evangelical Christianity, but really even broadly, it's probably been in every kind of movement of Christianity the past 50 or so years, post-revivalist, modern revivalist and dispensationalist stuff, and fundament, post-fundamentalism probably in America. Most of it is a theology of glory or theology of victory where suffering really gets taken as a sign of like you did something wrong or sure. you are not in this particular covenant or whatever, whereas suffering really is a, an integral part to a crisis of faith to reveal something, to go... Yeah. Where, coming back to the question of what do I actually believe in this case, the it can be cliche, but it really, when you're actually suffering, it's not cliche at all. It's something that is just as real as any kind of big lofty idea that hasn't encountered reality yet. Yeah. Um, and so that whole going through different ideas that are um, in some ways very counter and very well thought out counter to it, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> whether that's reading through Nietzsche, who is not... You know, he's not just simply writing, oh, God is dead, but he's writing, God is dead, and we killed him, which is yeah. a much better argument than, oh, God is dead. <laughs> and regardless of whether I'm coming into that from faith or from not, it's something that I don't want to ignore. Like, I, the trust in the, at the bottom of all of it is that I'm not going to, you know, if I'm trusting that God exists or insists in the way that um, believe that uh, he does, then I mean, encountering an idea that's, and, antithetical to that is not going to make it disappear or go away or whatever. Yeah. It's not going to make the efficacy of that go away. It's going to only lead to a furthering of truth and a furthering of my understanding of what it is. Can my faith survive exploring that process? Well, if it can't, then what is its value is really the question, which can be come from a place of rebellion in a sense and then come from a place of of trust, and my hope is that it's always taking me towards the trust factor of that. Yeah. But and sometimes it can feel like the rebellion thing when I'm going through crises of faith. It's I want to come at my traditions and come at my faith, not not necessarily to destroy it or anything, but to to go. Oh, if it's not this destroyable, then there's something much deeper going on. Something exactly. I can trust in beyond that. You know. So yeah. That's kind of the idea. Behind it. Yeah. Um. Uh, I find it very also refreshing that you, um, without trying to sound like offensive to most other people, is that like you, you take your faith seriously enough to actually consider it as like, you know, to delve into it. Um, because I mean, obviously your undergrad is what it is. And so that, um, you take your faith seriously enough to make a commitment to look into it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, I think initially maybe the transition from my early undergraduate to latter, um, was going into it from almost the apologetic side where you, Mm -hmm. you want to have defenses for everything. Um, now there's an assumption underneath that, that you're constantly having to defend, um, something that, uh, 
like you're, you're always going to be on the defensive, which is a problematic assumption. But um, but it went from that apologetic side, being able to answer questions about, well, all right, so there's all these variations in Scripture and these textual variants to this one particular thing. How can you trust that this text that you're saying is authoritative in some sure. way um, is, <clears throat> you know, from the gamut of literally true to metaphorically, to all the other kinds of issues of errancy and inerrancy with biblical text. Um, it started off from going to have like intelligent background to that, just background, not even necessarily defense, to I think an undergrad in the last couple semesters understanding the philosophy behind linguistics and um, um, going like, oh, but language is itself the grammar of things and the way that grammar works as a philosophical idea was much more informative to how I thought about faith than like yeah. propositions that. But that what I believe, coming back to that question, is like, oh, I believe in this proposition or whatever. That yeah. um, even in a creedal faith, the creed isn't so much the propositions; it's the grammar that it forms about you. And that grammar was a much better metaphor for understanding yeah. life. Like, it wasn't that I say to people, "Oh, I believe X thing." It's that I'm trying to live in such a way that people would be like, "Oh, I bet he believes X thing." Exactly. Or when he says that, oh, I see that in the grammar of the way it works out in the life. Um, yeah. And it took me a while to get to understand that, but part of that just linguistically, again, was pragmatic. I wanted to focus on a sure. topic, but also it very nicely, providentially unfolded to go, oh, this focus really helped me to understand a way to persist in my faith when I lost faith in the idea of propositions as being like the thing that was it. It was more, mm -hmm. oh, no, it's the grammar that's holding, holding yeah. fast and all that. Um. <clears throat> The, there seems to be um, sort of conflicts between um, sort of conservatively biblical straightforwardness and sort of being a uh, sort of modern liberal progressive yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, um, I'm just kind of curious, how yeah. do you uh, sort of reconcile the two being totally. a fully devoted Christian while also um, holding these views that um, I guess seem to conflict with some people. Yeah, totally. Um, no, I mean, some of it is that the most visible forms that we get, especially in the states of Christianity, tend to be of a politically conservative, yeah. almost always. And, yeah. and so that is almost this top-down picture that paints something for either those outside of religious faith or those in other religious faiths to go, oh, it has to look like this in order to be authentically, quote-unquote, Christian um, mm -hmm. or authentically conservative. And there's usually a rich um, stream in a lot of different directions that just isn't necessarily as visible. So that was the main thing to discover was that it wasn't so much that um, you kind of fall into the liberal boogeyman um, Category, it's more that, like, oh, there's a whole other world of people. It just doesn't get as visible. It's not as large in a lot of ways, but it's also just mm -hmm. not as public. Um, or some of the mistakes of um, liberal Protestant theology, which is a specific kind of period of, it's not like liberal politics or liberal like economics, but mm -hmm. like a specific period of like mid century German, um, mostly German and American uh, philosophers, theologians. That the problem was trying to pull out the whole, all of the metaphysical things that we want to be coy about, or maybe perhaps were embarrassing philosophically or embarrassing yeah. in terms of just movements and time mm -hmm. um, before we could like 
sometimes lazily grab onto like, oh, quantum indeterminacy, therefore the Holy Spirit exists. You know, <laughs> uh, while that can be, I think that's a fun illustration. I think it's not without merit. It's not like the thing, um, not necessarily analogically the case, but um, but it was really that those mistakes, being embarrassed about the metaphysics of it, didn't really do as much good as people might have thought. And so more left-leaning uh, believers are trying to figure out their philosophical language for that, and there's been some really great theologians of doing that. Um, Leslie Newbigin, um, Stanley Hauerwas, and uh, obviously Ronald Niebuhr were really great at still articulating those kind of things that aren't necessarily in the very quote-unquote conservative fold, yeah. but <clears throat> have just as much ontological and meta- metaphysical weight as the more traditionally conservative or reformed um, uh, mm-hmm. nowadays are the biggest kind of movement of that um, they're able to, to latch on that in the same way and so for myself it's more more just really asking the question again what am I believing and what it looks like is something that I don't want to discount it because it falls under some sort of like broad American political shape whether that's a little more conservative um, to go what it looks like you know I, there's a fallacy in reading modern political or philosophical or anything movements back into scripture and <clears throat> sometimes it's linguistic like going dunamis that means power so really power of God and scripture is the dynamite of God and as we get dynamite from dunamis, no, no that's, they didn't have dynamite they weren't Paul wasn't writing that thinking oh this is like dynamite um, because that's not his context at all mm-hmm. he's like this is the word for power we just got dynamite from it later um, same thing if I'm looking at um, you know trying to pull attention away from um you know, fighting over whether or not Russians hacked the election <laughs> nonstop, which is important to, to keep in mind, but it's also going, but directly there's something happening in Aleppo right now, very, very specifically, mm-hmm. um, that is a genocide. And it's been happening for years now. Yeah. And there's something very specifically happening, and I can't pull my attention away from that. And I can't see all of the very easy ways to just even extremely modestly help out with that. Um, by either giving money or by emailing a senator or by sending a letter or calling something. Um, that motivation really comes from the fact that it's like, oh, this is something that this is where I feel like Jesus is. This is where um, um, if there's a place for a person of faith that's going, you know, that, um, that the point of our life is that someone else laid down a life for us in order to grant us a level of um, uh, being able to live and be among other people and have empathy with them, yeah. that the first step of that is then finding the places where they are in the most need. And even if it's something that passes by in a week and then next week we're talking about something different, um, there's real concrete help that goes from getting a couple of sleeping bags to kids there or getting um, you know six months worth of giving down to uh, be able to uh, uh, fund either a campsite or fund um, some paperwork to be able to get uh, refugee papers to get to Jordan or to get to Lebanon or to get to Turkey or to get to Iraq even to get out yeah. of Syria um, that all those things are they don't necessarily it's not that that then goes back into our religious faith and then informs it but rather that when I'm trying to honestly look at it that's where those things sort of go and if they fall under typically liberal categories then great um, some of the things that are more contentious whether that's dealing with like um, uh, how to deal with LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, folks what is scripture Deal with that how do individual churches deal with that yeah um they're really the way that the church is so poorly approached even that specific issue dealing with yeah. um, 
homosexual, transgender uh, folks and queer folks is to, they've done so poorly with it. My conviction is it is to spend a long time listening um, and a long period of just listening. And the listening process means that you are engaging someone as completely within their rights to be who they are and express who they are. Um, Not out of a vague liberal idea of Mm self-expression or um, equality even in and of itself, but that equality or self-expression or that um, sexual or gender expression is something that comes from you understand that by your reasoning through scripture. You understand that by your reasoning through faith, mm. not you understand your faith in terms of equality. Understand equality always in terms of faith. And if I'm like being totally honest with myself, the way I'm understanding that is that I'm understanding that these, this is a biological thing that people are born into, that they're finding ways to express and by no means gather someone more advantage by saying, oh, I'm gay or oh, I'm not gay or oh, I've I find that my gender um, is not something that's easily binary. Um, That's not something that somebody just does to like a climate scientist and getting more money to, you know, (laughs) for climate change or whatever. It's like, that's, that's not the case. This is someone Mm -hmm. who has, who their vested interest is being themselves and the place of listening and the place of equality and the approach of a faithful person is to say, no, I want to hear, I want to, I want to know what your experience is as much as I can, which is always going to be limited but I want to know what your experience is before I'm saying to you, oh, this is that and this is wrong or this is right. Um, but to say, no, you are someone who's valued because you are, and that's it. Yeah. And to go, okay, now that we have your value there um, uh, because you simply exist and because you simply are um, a child of God in very traditional terms, um, that that doesn't get an asterisk because of your sexual expression or your, your gender expression or any yeah. of those kind of things. and working hard to make sure those asterisks don't stay around, but doing that from a place of being within the church and being within faith communities is partially the goal of going. Yeah. And that's this going back to the same sort of trust that I can read um, Camus and not feel like, oh yeah, my faith is gonna somehow disappear because I've read this thing that's so antithetical to it in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, but rather that it's strengthened the same sense to go, um, I also have trust that the church and that the broader Christian faith are gonna recognize humanity in the people that they are dehumanizing and that that's sure. something that is a trajectory the um but hopefully the trajectory of that is always going to be this or that i trust that, that trajectory is going to be what happens but it may mean that i have to either counter or be ostracized by more conservative friends or more conservative yeah. sisters and brothers and that's okay that's part of the process of it and that again, as long as I'm not doing it so that I feel like I'm somehow superior to them or I'm somehow superior to um, to myself or a previous version of myself <laughs> yeah. or whatever, that that I'm not doing it out of a selfish motive and that's the hope or whatever. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Hopefully that's all clear. I'm yeah. Trying not to be like <laughs> super wordy about it. But. Yeah. Um, and I mean, ah, dang. Okay, there's one, yeah. like, two more questions ish. Um, but, um, in because that was more of like a political cultural sort of sure, context sure, sure, within yeah. that, but then um, the the way that um, culture, uh, especially in America, um, sort of economically is led by sort of this selfishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you reconcile living in a world that um, encourages yeah. 
this sort of ruthless selfishness and uh, obviously empowers those people now um, in, in a way that you can still, for one, make a living because you still have to yeah. survive and in another way uh, still live in a way that um, it's congruent with your beliefs. Yeah. Man, I, I, there are especially moments where I'm more in this, I mean, even on a pretty personal level, like moments where I'm more in despair or frustration at financial situations, usually that. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be a surprise to people that teachers slash musicians slash uh, church staff <laughs> don't make that much money, um, <laughs> even with three jobs, uh, especially in Oklahoma. Um, but in the moments of the highest despair, the, the places I kind of run to, there's moments where I feel like, man, I just, I want to give up. Like, and giving up to me, fair or unfair to those who are really excellent at um, living in a way that's fairly monetarily organized and, and successful, my giving up looks a little bit like um, uh, when I, that my end goal just simply becomes paying bills and um, trying to do that with as much excess as possible so that we can enjoy consuming things, whatever, yeah. you know. That's, that's very, very close to my normal it's like there's some line in there of, of existence to like the normal life of things where you wanting to do your crafts and arts and of teaching, of creating things and playing music and uh, serving people in the front line um, to and then be able to go home and hang out with my family and us occasionally go eat out somewhere that's good and enjoy yeah. a movie. Things that are fairly just consumers type stuff. It It's a really fine line. I don't know what it is. So. Some of it is having humility that I am absolutely subverting some of those things I say I believe every mm-hmm. freaking day. Um, <laughs> and then trying to be honest with myself about that. And then trying to be honest where those things can lead to, again, consuming. I don't think the answer in the long term is ever going to be like consuming in a way, c- conscious consumerism or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, um, I think it is great that you can buy a pair of Toms and that's going to also send a pair of shoes to somebody else. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Or that, you know, Bono is constantly tying record sales to um, things that are bringing about justice for people. That's not bad, but it's not also the end goal of it. The thing that I'm honestly, it's probably unfolding in the past five years maybe, mm-hmm. if, of looking at structural economics and uh, trying to find ways to be active politically in that if I can, or be active mm-hmm. among my friends uh, personally in that. Yeah. Sometimes with structures, the only things that are changing the only things that can really change about these large structural things. And that's why I'm much more minimal to like, um, democratic socialism than I would have been five years ago because yeah. I start to see that some of the structures are so large, especially for people that are not like myself, um, for people of color, for people of minority sexualities, minority genders, it's going to be, um, the structures are the things that are constantly oppressing them. And I participate in those in ways I definitely don't even recognize. Yeah. And, trying to constantly be listening and learning instead of just going, oh, yeah, this is so bad. Or, oh, yeah, I want to join along and try to colonize my African-American friends over the past couple of years who have seen the states be much more racist than we than we ever wanted to admit. And they're going like, yeah, I told you. So I mean, we've been saying this for yeah. so many years <laughs> now. And not to be a newcomer to that being like, oh, gosh, everybody's so racist. I'm so surprised when nobody who's a minority has ever been surprised at that, you know, in the states. So. Mm-hmm trying to find ways to not act, you know, 
stupid in that sense in one way or arrogant or a Johnny come lately with a, some social justice movement that's been going on is part of the ways I'm trying to adapt and be genuine to it. You know, that makes yeah. sense. Does that kind of answer what you were thinking? About? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so then the last question is fairly simple, I guess, but it's yeah. what advice do you have for people? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I always want to go with Kierkegaard's The Crowd is Untruth, so just to disregard <laughs> everything I'm about to say. Um, no, I mean, I, I think the clue, or I'd love to see, maybe put it this way, like I'd love to see how um, folks that have a, an aesthetic imagination, uh, which is a trying to be specific, but it's all fancy way of saying, like, you can see beauty in the world you see terrible things in the world and you see how those things interact and uh, bump up against each other you see how people can be empathetic which takes imagination the key to empathy the key to like thinking like someone else is to imagine yourself like them yeah even though imagination is always imperfect um the minute that you start to imagine yourself in someone else's shoes you are um you're doing a creative act one um and then you're also doing something which hopefully inevitably tears down divisions and tears down prejudices it it's crazy to go on facebook and like see some of the interactions of folks with reality and i don't mean that in a really like an arrogant sense like people just don't get what's real but like sure to go things that occur in real time things that are actually real that are not like debatable items mm -hmm. get debated because of ideologies and the point of of wall building that occurs right there is the point where your ideology builds your wall for you um, and it does nothing to do with the reality you encounter has nothing to do with anyone else and then once you get that ideological wall built you're safe you live behind it. I'm picturing like in Belfast people <laughs> built walls between different parts of their own neighborhoods their neighbors because they were throwing bombs at their neighbors and there's yeah. people that live by them that have a geographical closeness but their ideologies cause them to build literal physical walls yeah. to prevent them throwing Molotov cocktails at each other and um, that is essentially what happens in language and these social interactions we have online which yeah. evolves in five years to something totally different who knows yeah. um, but as of right now that's where we're at and so for people to practice advice would be just practicing empathy practice the imagination of being somebody else will help to tear down the the ideological stuff and tearing down the wall is such a cliche thing but when it becomes a literal wall you can picture in your head like Berlin Wall or Peace Wall in Belfast or um, or a wall from uh, South Texas to Mexico like those things are literal things that are being built yeah. have been built will be built again and those get literally torn down and figuratively torn down whenever people practice empathy of being somebody else who they're not and realizing that the way that they live isn't necessary is contingent so yeah yeah, I like that. Um, Dustin, where can we find your stuff? <laughs> my stuff? Um, well, my addresses. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, like youngweather.com is the name. Is Young Weather's name I give to like my band, which is mostly me. And then I have some guys that play with me time to time. Mm -hmm. They're all really, really awesome. But it, it stays fluid so that I could, will keep doing it and that I'm a terrible person at like running a band. Um, <laughs> but... <clears throat> always enjoy writing so youngweather.com for creative stuff and then I'm on Twitter as Walrus Muse and 
all the social stuff is that, um, which was a screen name came up with in eighth grade because I really like the Beatles and I like reading poetry and so I combined those two things together for like your AOL screen name yeah, yeah. which is something that was around before many of you were born um, and it just kind of just stuck since then because yeah. it's so random and makes no sense so yeah. when I signed up for Twitter I was like this is stupid nobody's going to use this thing so I'll use yeah. Walrus Muse and then five years later people are like oh, I love your guitar pedals I'm like no that's Walrus Audio they're friends of mine <laughs> and I help them and work with them sometimes but I'm not them like yeah <laughs> All these confusing things come out of that. I never would have thought. Yeah. Well, cool. before before Twitter, it was uh, uh, like gamer tags. On, like, oh, yeah, exactly. So was, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I had one, and I'm not fond of it anymore. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, well, yeah, that's all your stuff. What about, like, is there anything that you want people to, like, listen to or look at? or? Man, um Jeez, no, it's all the stuff that I throw at you guys in class. Like, read more, read more Seamus Heaney, um, <laughs> Irish poet. Um, read more, um, yeah, read more poems in general. That's, that's like my <laughs> super academic y mind going um, uh, to, to, to every, my coastal eliteness, you know, even though I live in Oklahoma. <laughs> like, man, if people just read more poems, they all be nicer to each other. But <laughs> there's a side of me that's like, We'll probably never find out because people aren't ever going to do that so much. But, um, but man, it'd be fun to find out, you know. Yeah. If, uh, and that reading poems is more of a, uh, again, metonymy for like having a, a an active imagination and an empathetic imagination and trying to realize that even the super mundane stuff you see day in day out can be can come to life if you press enough imagination. And I say that as somebody that is just trying to do that from day to day. And yeah. Most of the time, I'm like well, I'm driving now, I'm bored, I'm going to put on a podcast or whatever, and <laughs> that's what I'm doing, or I'm going to listen to music and try to escape this extremely mundane commute or whatever. Um, yeah. But occasionally those moments break through, and it's finding ways to make those moments then last without being too nostalgic about it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Was that, yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you cool. for No, thank you so us. much. Absolutely. And, um... That's Dustin Raglan. I'm Santiago Ramones. You can find all the stuff that I do on SantiagoRamones.com. I also make music, which will be on my website as well. Uh, I always end the podcast with my three things, which is sort of what I believe, uh, which is love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong. Thanks for listening. Awesome, man.